What can we as physicians do in our office besides sending our patients to rehab when they drink too much? You are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. Joining me today is Dr. Mark Willenbring, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at George Washington University School of Medicine and Director of the Treatment and Recovery Research Division of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Dr. Willenbring, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the newer clinical tools that the NIAAA has actually come out with to, to help us assess our patients to see if they are problematic? I'd, I'd be happy to. For about 15 years, uh, NIAAA has published a physician's guide, uh, and in 2005, we revised it rather substantially and is now called the Clinician's Guide because it may be uh, helpful for other clinicians besides physicians, but it's primarily oriented towards physicians or other uh, prescribers, uh, primary care providers, for example. And this Clinician's Guide provides doctors with the tools they need to do screening, assessment, and treatment in their offices in a very time-efficient way, in addition to having the option of referring people with alcohol dependence to an alcohol treatment program. I want to jump in there because I am a a general internist and I have 12 minutes to spend with each patient, so I don't see how I can do a good job at counseling and or even unearthing a drinking problem and or doing it well in 12 minutes. It's just my hands are full enough. Well, it's not expected that every time you see the patient you're going to be doing this. And we recognize that most physicians will do this selectively, just like you do for every other disease. In other words, I imagine you probably treat depression in your practice. I do. But you don't spend, you know, half an hour with every patient to do an assessment of their mental health and so forth. Most of your patients probably come saying, I'm, I'm depressed, and, and by the way, I'm interested in getting treatment for it. I think there's a huge need for that, and I think that there are many people out there uh, who are functional, but they are alcohol dependent. They know it. And if they thought that there was a treatment that was effective that they could get from their primary care doctor, I think they would present with this problem. They would say, I really want some help. I'm drinking too much. I heard about this medication, doctor. Can you prescribe it? So the stigma uh, has to be removed, as it was for Prozac uh, many years ago. For depression. Yes, that's right. What I ask people to do is, if if, if they haven't been through it, is, you know, picture yourself entering a a treatment program tomorrow, walking in and getting this stigmatizing diagnosis you'll never get rid of. It's not a treatment that I think people find very appealing, Mm -hmm. frankly. I, I I don't think most people like the idea of group counseling and... I'm not saying that's not effective. I'm just saying that I think one of the reasons it's not used more is not only because it's hard to access for many people, but also because I think people are frightened of it or they are worried about the stigma. I think it's very different to go to your own doctor and say, you know, could I try that medication for my drinking? I'd really, I've been trying to stop and I really can't. And uh, I, I, you know, it's causing me some distress and trouble, and I'd really like to stop. So what we have available now is it's extremely easy to, to screen, and we have a single screening question. For men, the screening question is, how many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks in a day? And what is a drink? Well, a drink is the amount of alcohol in t- about 12 ounces of beer or about five ounces of table wine, like 
burgundy or chablis, and uh, about 1.5 ounces, which is a shot in the U.S., of 40-proof distilled beverages like vodka. They all have about the same amount of alcohol. And one of the things that people should recognize, of course, is that beer has alcohol like any other beverages. Sometimes people don't even think of beer as an alcoholic beverage. What's the cutoff in terms of what's the appropriate answer? Basically, it's zero because uh, our recommendation is that healthy men uh, never drink more than four drinks in a day and no more than 14 in a week. For women, the recommendations are no more than three in a day and seven in a week. And we find that simply by starting the conversation with that question, you can very rapidly screen for whether a person is engaging in heavy drinking on any regular basis. It turns out that over 70% of adults in the country never exceed those limits. So it's often pretty quick that you rule this out. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Dr. Mark Willenbring, clinical professor of psychiatry at George Washington University School of Medicine and director of the Treatment and Recovery Research Division of the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And we're talking about what we can do as physicians to help our patients who drink too much. Dr. Willenbring, you're saying that if you ask someone if they've had more than five drinks a day, that they have not done that ever in the last year. And I, I, I got to think that uh, college kids and people fresh out of college, when they go out drinking on the weekends, they're going to have five to six drinks. They're going to fail that screen. You're, you're absolutely right. Heavy drinking occurs primarily between the ages of 18 and 25 or 30, and then it goes down fairly rapidly uh, and stabilizes until 50, where it go, really goes down to very low levels. So a positive screen is going to be more common among uh, young people. That's why in step two of our guide, we provide a very quick way to assess whether someone has an alcohol use disorder. And I think realistically most physicians will try to divide this into heavy drinking that's not causing problems and heavy drinking that's causing problems in a person's life. Can we still use the rule of doubles when you ask someone how much they drink in a week and just double it, whatever they tell us? Actually not. In this kind of a context, uh, if it's asked in this kind of a matter-of-fact way, and by the way, I usually embed it, I usually you know, ask people if they smoke, and then I ask this, this screening question for alcohol, and then I ask about other drugs, and I ask about diet and exercise. So if you, one of the best you places kind of sl- So you just slip it in there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you just, it's just a matter-of-fact thing, and Actually, the studies are, are, are very clear that most people will be uh, quite honest. Let's hear the question again. Well, if for men, it's how many times in the past year have you had five or more drinks in a day? For women, it's how many times in the past year have you had four or more drinks in a day? Okay, well, so that's easy to put into a screening uh, questionnaire even Absolutely. by our nurse by, in our electronic medical record. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Exactly. And then if, if somebody's a heavy drinker, the next question is, well, do they have uh, drinking with problems? I mean, do they have an alcohol use disorder, like alcohol dependence? Or are they simply an at-risk drinker? Now, an at-risk drinker is somebody who exceeds those limits on some regular basis, let's say once a month or more, uh, but they don't meet any criteria for alcohol abuse or dependence. And for those people, they don't have any symptoms. They don't experience it as a problem. Most of the time, they simply don't realize it's a health risk. And So the uh, idea here is simply to do secondary prevention, to do risk reduction, to educate patients. And that's what we call 
a brief intervention or brief motivational counseling. Dr. Willenbring, I, I feel I have mastered the use of antidepressants in my practice, and now I think it's time to enter into a whole new class of drugs to treat my alcohol-impaired patients. Tell me about the drugs that are out there that I should know about. There are four drugs that are currently have effectiveness proven in alcohol dependence. The oldest drug, and the one that most people are probably aware of, is disulfiram, which is commonly known as anabuse. And that's a medication that if you're taking it and you drink alcohol, it makes you ill. That's not used very commonly, and I don't think in primary care that's going to be used very commonly at all. The most common medications, I think, will be naltrexone, topiramate, and a campersate. Now, naltrexone is an opiate blocker that has an effect size it's very similar to antidepressants for outpatient depression. Very easy to prescribe. doesn't have very many interactions. It's a single daily dose, and it's very well tolerated. The second medication is topiramate, known as Topamax. Mm-hmm. And most physicians are familiar with that because it's used pretty commonly now for migraine prophylaxis. And that actually looks like a very, very good drug. Now, it has more side effects, but the trick there is you have to get the dose up. It actually has more side effects at low doses, like 25 or 50 milligrams a day. And the side effects tend to decrease or go away as you get up to 100 milligrams per day or greater. And one really interesting thing about topiramate is that in uh, a recent study, over the course of the study, more and more people in the topiramate group got into 28 days of abstinence, that is, People, more people got into recovery over time. And that trend hadn't stopped by the end of treatment. And the, the beauty of using Topamax is if they are a heavy drinker and they withdraw, uh, potentially they won't seize. Well, that's right. So it's especially useful in, the, in uh, circumstances where you're worried about seizures. Um, back to nal- naltrexone. What's the other name for that? You know, it's actually generic now. Uh, it was originally marketed as Revia. It's... Uh, marketed under a a number of names now, but it's basically a generic medication. I don't have any drug reps calling on me for any of these medicines, and all my meetings I go to, none of this is discussed. This has been a major problem. You know, when uh, naltrexone was approved for the treatment of alcohol dependence, it had already been on the market for treatment of opiate dependence, and there were only two years left in the patent life, Uh, so it was never actively uh, marketed. Topiramate does not have this as indication. an indication, okay. so it can't be marketed for that indication. The only medication that has, well, actually, there are two forms of medication uh, that have been marketed uh, somewhat more aggressively recently, uh, and that is an injectable form of naltrexone. Naltrexone comes in a long-acting injectable form that actually lasts a month. It's a very nice product, and that's marketed under a name uh, Vivitrol. The other one is a camprosate, and that's marketed as Camprol. However, that's been primarily marketed to the psychiatric uh, community. I think that one of the challenges here has been that pharmaceutical companies have been somewhat baffled by the market. Typically, when you're marketing a drug, let's say a, a cardiovascular drug, you start with the specialist, the cardiologist, and then you move into primary care from there. With alcohol dependence, currently that doesn't work because treatment programs basically offer group counseling and AA in the United States, and they're not medically oriented, and they don't have physicians on staff. So 
trying to start there simply doesn't work, and I think that's been a mistake that pharmaceutical companies have made. However, there's growing interest among major pharmaceutical companies now, and, and several of them are pursuing uh, this indication with new medications that are not currently on the market for any other indication. And I think they see the potential. The market potential here, I think, is enormous. I think it's, it's similar to that for depression when the SSRIs came out. Dr. Mark Willenbring of the NIAAA, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. If you'd like to comment or listen to our full library of on-demand podcasts, please visit our website at reachmd.com. Once there, if you register with the promo code RADIO, we'll give you six months free of streaming ReachMD you can listen to at home or at work. You can also reach us by phone by calling 888-MD-XM-157. Thanks for listening.